As you know by now, the news out of Israel and Gaza has just been horrific. The infamous rampage through the outdoor music festival killed at least 260 partiers, at least. Major blasts rocked Gaza just minutes ago. If people do not or cannot evacuate, probability is it will be a bloodbath. CNN's teams on the ground, they had to take cover because of what was happening overhead. I'm going to show you these, these moments. As a journalist, I'm so proud of the work we get to do on the ground. It's important. It matters. But I've got to be honest. That news can also be hard to absorb, to take in and experience. As a dad, in moments like these, I can't help but worry about what my kids are seeing and what they're hearing. And you, if you're feeling burnt out or overwhelmed or burdened by what you're seeing or hearing on your screen or social media feed, I want to tell you this. I'm feeling it too. A lot of people are. In the days after Hamas's attack on Israel, the American Psychological Association issued a statement specifically warning of the psychological impact of the ongoing violence in Israel and Gaza, even for those who are simply watching from afar. Other research has linked exposure to that violence in the media and the news as part of a cycle of harm to mental health. That's why on today's podcast, we're going to hit pause on the current season of Chasing Life. This episode was supposed to be about using food to nourish your brain, and you'll hear about that next week. But right now, I think it's important to talk about what we can all do to take care of ourselves, to take care of our brains and our minds, and to take care of those we love. And I'm not saying, hey, crawl under a rock and have no idea what's going on. I'm not advocating for that. But I am advocating for perhaps not scrolling through on the social media where there's no trigger warning. There's no warning. It's just a constant diet of really upsetting images. That's Dr. Gail Saltz. She's a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital and Weill Cornell Medical College. She's also hosted the podcast, How Can I Help? Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Saltz about steps we can all take to balance staying informed while also managing our mental health. Plus, there's going to be some tips for parents, myself included, who may be wondering this. How do I talk to my kids about all this? Should I talk to my kids about all this? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. As you know, Dr. Saltz, the American Psychological Association released a statement shortly after the attacks on Israel warning that consuming violent and traumatic news in and of itself can take a toll on our mental health. These aren't necessarily people who witness things firsthand, but are then consuming this content online or on television. Do do you see that? I mean, after a terrible event like this, what do you see in your own practice? In my own practice, and even in a larger group, I see that the visual images give one the impression that the danger is close. It's very arousing, visual images more so than something that you heard or something that you read tend to stick in your mind rather like a movie. And they can Mm. become intrusive images that you can't get out of your mind. And it's distressing. And that causes an overall arousal in the brain and then in the body, physiologic response to that that sympathetic nervous system says danger, and you become jittery, anxious. Those things are something that we've known forever and ever. But this recent 
ability to see these terrible visual images, which is really unlike 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Hmm. and to have them be a constant feed, constantly available, I think is really harmful, particularly for children, but also for adolescents and also for adults. I have to say, you know, I have been doing this sort of work for a long time. I've covered natural disasters and covered conflicts all over the world. And one thing that I I noticed was that conflicts were worse for mental health versus natural disasters because people were targeted. And there was a sense of, of feeling targeted. Natural disaster is very awful, but there was often a sense of, look, this was something that was a natural act, and we're all in this together. What has been so such depravity with this particular event is that people were targeted, and many of those people were were children, were were people who had nothing to do with this conflict. And I I have to say, just even for myself, it's been very intrusive, Doctor Saltz. I, yeah. I just I I I'm having a hard time getting it out of my own head. Well, you know, you're you're an at risk group, Sanjay. You journalists who are in close proximity and who get a constant diet of horrendous, particularly visual information, are at increased risk for an acute stress reaction. What does that mean? You know, you're, you have some, some constant high anxiety. You have trouble sleeping. You maybe lose your appetite. You don't feel pleasure and joy in doing the things that you did before. And you have sort of a sense of like danger, like jittery danger, right? And a percentage of people who develop an acute stress reaction will go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the people most likely are people who are in closer proximity to the actual events. Obviously, if you're there or your family's there or this touches you in some more direct way. But even people who are ripples out from this can develop and particularly people who either have a prior mental health issue like an anxiety disorder or a mood disorder and people who have suffered trauma in their past. And it can be a completely mm. unrelated trauma any trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma of any sort makes you at higher risk for reacting to and developing this acute stress reaction to these images we are seeing. And that's why I'm agreeing with the American Psychological Association and other organizations that have come out to say, hey, take these social media apps off your kid's phone for a while. Hmm. But I would also say for the adults, what many people can do is to really think about how they're consuming their news right now. And I'm not saying, hey, crawl under a rock and have no idea what's going on. I'm not advocating for that. But I am advocating for perhaps not scrolling through on the social media where there's no trigger warning, there's no warning, it's just a constant diet of really upsetting images. I think the point that you make about social media versus traditional media is really important. And to be fair, I consume both. I think most people do. But I I know working at a traditional media organization, we go through this process editorially of determining, look, is this image something that we should be showing? Is it gratuitous in some way? Does it serve a purpose? And we do provide warnings. Look, the images you're about to see could be very triggering to people. Sometimes social media platforms do that, but they might not. And you could be scrolling and all of a sudden be bombarded with very disturbing content. And it's it's hard. Is that the world, do you think, in, in which we now live? Is that just going to be the way things are? 
Well, I don't see a turning away from it. And so I am concerned that is the world we at least now are living in. We're not prioritizing, let's say, mental health over the access to these things because, you know, they're very financially driven. (laughs) Um, So I, I don't see that changing in the short term. And what I could say to people is simply this. If you are not aware of how addictive the looking is, so when even when a warning comes on and says, hey, this might not be appropriate, et cetera, many people feel stoked to look more. It's titillating. It probably zaps a little bit of your like dopamine, you know, system to say, ooh, this is going to be something dangerous, exciting, bad. And for many people, they don't consciously think it through, right? But they just are like, no, I got to stay active to see this. And in fairness, sometimes it's because for many people, what they can imagine something terrible might be even more terrible than the terrible thing mm. you're seeing, right? So people do feel compelled to look and they really have to make a conscious decision. You know what? I've checked in with my mental health and I am feeling physically and mentally on such high alert. It's taking a toll. I'm having trouble being as present at work. I'm having trouble going to sleep at night. I have to say, I need a bit of a news and social media diet right now because it will help me. And without making that very conscious for people, they're probably just not going to do it. I think the idea of what happens in the brain and the fact that this type of content that we're talking about will stimulate the amygdala, which listeners of this podcast and your podcast will know what that means. These are the emotional centers of the brain. And like it or not, you tend to stick around when your emotional centers are flared up. And it's a financial model, I guess. It's it's a little bit sick, frankly, that someone would go online to look for healthy recipes and end up somehow being diverted to eating disorders or, or whatever it may be. But that's what sells, Absolutely. It and it's all anxiety isn't bad. Some anxiety, right, it's our evolutionary system saying, look out for the danger, avoid it, do the problem solving so that you can stick around another day and pass on your genes. And we also know like some anxiety helps performance. It helps test performance. It helps sports performance. But we know that when you've gone past that window of of good performance anxiety, we know all performance goes down. We know all, you know, we know mood goes down and we know people suffer. And so it's, it's really hard to be your own gatekeeper um, because you're up against a whole industry, as you're pointing out, that, you know, is also banking on, you know, this normal human evolutionary response to having a brain structure record fear and say, oh, fear, I better look, I better problem solve, I better be aware, I better be on. It's just like we're not in our, you know, what I'll use a therapeutic term from DBT therapy. We're not in our wise mind when we're, our amygdala is firing like crazy, but we can become in a wise mind by doing physiologic things to calm our system down so that you can make better choices for your mental health and for your family's mental health. Dr. Saltz tells us more, including some steps we should all take right now after the break. So I have three children. You have three children. My girls, I have three girls. They're 18, 16, and 14. And I'm, I'm curious, 
with regard to what's happening in Israel, in the Middle East right now, should I be bringing this up with them? Should I wait for them to ask me questions? H- how do you approach it? Yeah. Um, I also have three girls um, who are just, who are a little bit older, but this is really, I would say, the rule of thumb. Unfortunately, because there is so much social media and so much discussion and, and so on, it, chances are your child has absolutely heard something already. If your child is over 10, I would say to you, you want to open up this conversation because you want to be the trusted source and you want them to be able to talk to you about it. Mm. And you do that by basically saying, what have you heard? What do you know? What do you feel about what you've heard and what you know? And let them tell you. Then let them ask you questions that you should answer honestly. You don't have to be super graphic to answer honestly. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. You say, you know what, but I'm going to try to find some answers. But the idea is that you want them to know that you're always available to talk to them about their feelings. And I would talk to your kids who are over 10 about limiting what they're seeing because it will be better for them. And you need to explain it that way. Hey, look, I'm very aware seeing all this all the time, it's not good for your mental health. And we have to prioritize our mental health. So for the next week, let's just say, we can check in after that. Let's just, you know, remove the TikTok or let's just, you know, remove certain things and take a vacation from that while this is so disturbing and going to disturb you. Because if it would help, great, but it's actually not going to help. And then that's another thing to do with kids is sort of talk about, can we think about helping? Um, Helping for adults and kids is a great defense mechanism. It really, you know, it helps people to feel better when they are feeling scared and helpless Mm. and so on. So, um, you know, I I think that that's how I would tackle it. When your kid is under 10, it's going to be very difficult for them to understand a lot of these things. So again, I would, you know, listen for any evidence that they've heard anything about anything going on. And then obviously if they have, you want to ask them similar questions. How do you know if if something is becoming problematic when someone maybe should even seek out help from someone like you? Everybody gets anxious sometimes. And when things are difficult and stressful like they are now, they get more anxious and that is normal. But when you are so anxious that you're you're unable to concentrate, you can't concentrate at work, so your work performance suffers. You can't read a book because you can't get through the book. That basically the symptom of feeling jittery and nervous in your body and preoccupied with anxious thoughts in your mind like all day long, what if this happens? What if that happens? Has risen to the level that it affects your functioning in one or more important arenas of your life, work, school relationships, then that has risen to the level of something that needs treatment, something that needs attention. So when that, if that happens, and uh, usually we're talking about for more than two weeks, Hmm. then you should definitely seek help. Of course, there are the emergency right now things, you know, when you're thinking of harming yourself, then you need to be seen right away. But overall, things often percolate for a bit and then, you know, and, and then rise to the level of I'm, I'm not me, I'm not able to function correctly in some arena and they need to see someone. 
and I think you've probably told me this in the past, or I've read some of your work, but it can be unusual symptoms as well, I think, in kids, right? I mean, something like a bellyache, you know, and they think, well, it's just something I ate, but in fact, it may have a lot more to do with what they're consuming content-wise or just how they're feeling rather than what they ate. Thank you for saying that, because of course, I, I was really speaking about adults, and of course, um, in children, anxiety disorders and mood disorders can look very different. Um, kids can be suffering with depression and they don't look depressed all the time. They have episodes of feeling weepy and very upset or highly irritable and expressing sadness. But then they might have other times where they look happy, which is why depression is often missed in children and adolescents. Kids are much more likely to come into their pediatrician with a symptom that seems like it needs the pediatrician when indeed they're suffering from an anxiety disorder. And I think it's imp important for parents to know that 25% of children at some point in their childhood will develop an anxiety disorder. So it's not wow. 25%. It's not just, you know, because this terrible thing happened. Development is hard. Anxiety disorders are the most common and there are certain developmental stages where a child may just develop uh, a phobia or generalized anxiety or panic symptoms. And the amazing and important thing to know about that is that they are treatable. They don't require a long period of treatment. So early intervention is absolutely key. And with what's happening now with all these images, if your child has a couple of days of feeling not only stomach aches and that sort of thing, but also regressing a little, right? They don't want to be alone. They're following you around. They don't want to go to their friend's house. They achieved a milestone. They went back in that milestone. They're having trouble sleeping. Now they want to sleep in the bed with you. Couple things I would say to you. A couple of days, well, you're going to give them some comfort. You're going to help them to cope a little with those feelings. You'll be understanding. You'll talk with them about it. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're going to develop an anxiety disorder, but it does mean you want to attend to it. But if they maintain that falling off the development, regressing, that's another symptom that in fact, they may really need some sort of professional attention. You, you are a psychiatrist and you you're well informed. So th this sort of thing happens over the weekend. I, I don't know how you first heard about it. You've somebody told you or you're watching the news. How do you sort of balance being well informed while also being really diligent about your own mental health? Well, I do practice what I preach and I will limit what I'm looking at. I will limit either by, you know, saying like, okay, that app, I'm not opening that anymore. I'm going to look at my headline. In the morning, I might look again in the afternoon mm. and say, like, where are things? And I'll read as opposed to looking at images. And if I feel that I'm being particularly stoked, I might increase the coping tools that I do personally find are helpful for me because I know that bringing down my body's physiologic sympathetic nervous system response will bring down the thoughts in my mind as well. You know, Joseph Ledoux at NYU, brilliant researcher, and the one who really let us know so much about the amygdala and fear, also really helped us to understand that anxiety often, once it's started, is happening first in the body. And then our frontal lobe says, well, wait a minute, let me come up with a thought that makes this make sense that I'm having this physiologic anxiety. So it always feels to us like we thought a thought 
and then our body had this response. But often it's the other way around, but it happens so quickly, so quickly that it doesn't feel that way. So when you really ground and relax your body and try to bring up your parasympathetic response, it helps your mind as well. And I, so I do things that help me to do that. This does feel like a, an inflection point. There are horrible things we've already heard and seen. But as you point out, Dr. Saltz, it's going to continue for a while. And there's going to be uh, really, really tragic stories that we continue to hear and images that we see. So if someone does is in your office and you want, as part of their treatment, to help them, talk them through relaxation, what yeah. are some of those things? I wonder if you can talk sure. us through that. So, um Paced deep breathing is is really quite simple. You know, you you would put your hand on your chest. I'm going to do this as you're, sure. as you're describing so you it. Put your hand on your chest because you would like to inhale and have your chest, upper chest expand and not your belly. That is sort of to help you have a deep diaphragmatic breath. And you would breathe in through your nose with your, hopefully your hand, your chest rising to a count of five a slow count of five, and then you would bring, breathe out through your mouth to a slow count of seven, a little longer exhale than an inhale. And the reason is we know on that long extra exhale is what slows your heart rate just a little bit. And that helps bring mm. down, you know, bring the anxiety down. So doing that slow, deep breathing, close your eyes, be in a very relaxed position, sitting down, things shouldn't be tensed up, you, you know, and uh, doing that for about five minutes, 10 minutes should leave you afterwards feeling more physiologically relaxed. Alternatively, progressive muscle relaxation is mm. tightening a muscle group to account of five, holding the muscle group very, very tight to a count of five, and then releasing it. But you would start with your feet, flexing your feet, um, holding that very tightly for a count of five, and then releasing. Tightening your calves to a count of five, and then releasing. You would work your way up your legs. Then you would do your arms, you know, to a count of five. Mm. I'm, I'm not counting to five, but it would be longer than this, obviously. And then releasing. And you would do that with your shoulders, with your neck, and then at the end, scrunching your face to a count of five, and then releasing. So when you get basically to the top of your head, you should be more relaxed. That was my conversation with Dr. Gail Saltz, clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital and Weill Cornell Medical College. She's also host of the podcast, How Can I Help? You know, I'm really glad we took the time to have this conversation. It's important, and I think it can help you right now. But next week, we'll continue with our regularly scheduled programming as we continue this journey through the brain. We're going to serve up some food for thought as we consider the nourished brain. Most of my patients would rather reach for yoga than, you know, an antidepressant. That's next time on Chasing Life. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Our podcast is produced by Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, David Rind, and Grace Walker. Our senior producer and showrunner is Felicia Patinkin. Andrea Kane is our medical writer, and Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. 
Dan DeJula is our technical director and the executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Ben Tinker, Amanda Seeley, and Nadia Kunang of CNN Health.